So today's reading is from Philippians, um, chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you, with you all for your progress and join the faith, so that in me you may have, am- may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Uh, well, I've noticed that the EU uh, this semester has had a habit of inviting speakers who are follicularly challenged. Uh, as you saw earlier, Rowan is a bit uh, scarce in the hair department. Our speaker last week was as well, and I'm continuing that tradition. <laughs> uh, it'd be great if you've got your Bibles open. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 1 today. Uh, but as we start today, I want to ask you a question. Uh, where do you find joy? Uh, if you had to scroll through photos on your phone and if you had to post one of them on Instagram under the hashtag of joy, uh, which one would you choose and why? Would you pick a photo of the University of Sydney and put joy? Maybe not. Uh, would you put a photo of a cute little puppy with joy? Uh, would you pick a photo of your latest latte art? Would you put a photo of a rainbow? Would you put a photo of your favourite meal? This one's actually my wife's favourite meal. It's a salad. There's no meat in there. <laughs> would you pick a photo of your high school mates in their trendy outfits? Uh, would you pick a photo of your latest holiday? Or would you pick a photo of your family? Uh, what brings you joy in life? We all want to live a life filled with joy, don't we? Uh, we want to live a life filled without fears, without regrets, And yet, as we search for joy, our joy is hard to find, isn't it? It's an elusive thing. It's like a bar of soap that you're trying to grasp onto in the shower and it just keeps slipping through your fingers. We need to ask the question, though, is it even worth chasing after joy? Uh, The social demographer, Hugh Mackay, he's one of Australia's most respected and well-known social researchers. Uh, He says the following after his lifetime of investigating and observing the human quest for joy. He says, the popular idea of happiness is focused on a pleasant experience, an uplift, 
maximising the possibility of positive emotional experiences. But if we go further and yield to the temptation to confuse or conflate such happiness with the good life, we create some emotional and cultural hazards for ourselves, even some moral hazards. I think there's some real wisdom in that statement, isn't there? You see, our popular view of happiness is that it's all about our senses, about positive emotional experiences, about pleasure or gratification or even fulfilment. For those of us who study science, we can probably equate joy with a neurochemical reaction mediated by dopamine, serotonin and oxytocin, right? It's just a chemical high and one we can replicate with synthetic drugs, whether they're legal or illegal. But for us, I think we, we think that joy and happiness, they're not optional extras in life, are they? And we're told from an early age to do whatever makes you feel good, right? Feeling good or feeling happiness is often seen as the ultimate aim or the ultimate ambition in our lives. So as long as you don't hurt anyone, and as long as it feels good, and as long as it brings you joy, then that's what you should be pursuing, right? That becomes our ethic or our framework for doing things. And so pursuing joy, pursuing happiness, is essential for us to live the good life. Well, over the next three weeks, we're going to hear from a prisoner, a guy who was actually on death row, who wrote what he thought true joy actually looked like. And so as we do this, I'm going to suggest that we're going to encounter some pretty strange ideas, some pretty confronting and challenging ideas, because we've actually been sold a cheap, an imitation version of what true joy looks like in our 21st century world. And we think that we can find joy on Instagram or in chasing our dreams, but in fact, in this ancient letter, in the book of Philippians, we're going to see that those things couldn't be further from the truth. Paul begins his letter to the church in Philippi, which is in modern-day Greece, by telling them how thankful he is to God for the Christians that he knows in Philippi. He tells us in verse 4 that he always prays with joy because of their partnership in the Gospel from the first day until now. Now, it would be easy to assume that Paul's just talking about happiness here. You know, when he, when he prays, he thinks happy thoughts. He has nostalgic memories of his time in Philippi and it stirs up something warm and fuzzy, right? You know, whenever I think of my favourite holiday place, I get this kind of warm inner glow on the inside, right? But that's not the case for Paul. If you read the story in Acts chapter 16 of Paul's trip to Philippi, it was anything but pleasant, okay? Paul arrived in Philippi, and after meeting a fabric seller named Lydia, he then encounters a slave girl, and he gets on the wrong side of her owners who are financially taking advantage of her. And so what they do is they drag Paul before the magistrates, they strip him naked, and they beat him with sticks. And that's not enough. So then they throw him in jail and they lock his feet in stock so he can't move around freely in the cell. And then they're still not happy, so they release him the next day because they realise they've got no charges to actually hold him. And they kick him out of town and say, don't return ever again. Okay? And then there's an earthquake while he's in town and that, that's what frees him. You see, if you had to give Paul a rating on his trip to Philippi, on TripAdvisor, it would not get a very good rating. Okay? <laughs> it would not rate highly on comfort or on fun or on happiness. The locals weren't friendly, they beat him up, the accommodation wasn't nice, and overall I'd probably give it a one out of five stars. And yet despite that, Lydia, the slave girl, a prison guard and his whole family, they come to know the good news of Jesus Christ and they put their trust in him and find new life. 
And so when Paul prays for them, he prays with joy. Not because Philippi was a great place to visit with lots of scenic memories, but because they have been partners with him in the Gospel. They have shared with him in this great and good news about Jesus Christ from the very first day that he set foot in their city. And that brings him joy. You see, the joy we're talking about is different from mere happiness. Okay? Happiness and joy, they're related. They, they actually overlap, but they're actually distinct entities. Joy is something much more bigger and much more significant than mere happiness. You see, we can experience happiness about all sorts of things in life, can't we? Our happiness can be affected by the weather, by our relationships in life, by our external circumstances, by our internal neurochemistry. That goes up and down during our lifetime for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes staying up for a while, going down for a little bit, staying up for a little bit, going down for a long while. But joy, joy is something much more different. Joy is a deep-seated inclination of our minds and our wills, our decisions, towards something or away from something. 270 years ago, a guy called Jonathan Edwards wrote about the difference between our passions or our emotions and what he calls affections. You see, he would define happiness as an emotion, as a passion, but joy, joy is what he would call an affection. Our emotions, they're kind of like that knee-jerk response we have in, in reaction to our environment. They're very reactive. They go up and down for all sorts of reasons, multiple times a day. But our affections, they're something that are under the control of our minds. They are deliberate inclinations of our desires towards or away from something. I think give you an example. Let's just pretend for a moment that I was a lifelong smoker. Okay? Since the age of 18, I've been smoking a pack a day. And after years of my wife nagging me, I've decided to quit uh, for the good of my health. And so I deliberately choose, I deliberately incline my mind away from smoking cigarettes. And I choose to find joy in living a smoke-free life. Now, that's not saying that for every moment now I will be happy, does it? You know, quitting smoking may actually make me unhappy, particularly initially. I may feel cravings. I may have relapses. But slowly, over time, over years, I will begin to find joy in my new set of circumstances because I've chosen to incline myself to view this as a better way to live. And it's the same with Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul can say, in all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he describes himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. It's clear for Paul that you can have joy actually in the midst of sorrow itself and in the midst of trouble. Those two things aren't mutually exclusive as so often we think. And so we've got to admit that true joy cannot be as simplistic as the quest for happiness that so many of us embark on looks like. And in fact, we may have been settling for a cheap or a lower version of joy called happiness when we buy into the idea that happiness on its own is enough. Even Hugh Mackay, uh, that social researcher I mentioned earlier, he's not a Christian, but he can see that happiness on its own is not good enough for us. He says an obsession with happiness can make us scared of sadness and rather unhealthily relentless in our pursuit of the positive. Yet the truth is that to be fully human, to be normal, to be healthy, is to be occasionally engulfed by waves of grief or sadness, stimmied by feelings of despair 
paralysed by doubt or crushed by disappointment. So many of us, we live the mantra that do whatever feels good and we think that that will give us meaning and purpose in life but it just doesn't work out all the time, does it? And we try to cocoon ourselves from the pain and the suffering and the unpleasantness that we experience in life by just doing whatever makes us feel good. And we live as one of the most privileged, the most entitled and the most cotton wool wrapped societies that have ever existed in the history of humanity. As far as I know, none of us have experienced famine or war or genuine poverty. And yet our society on the whole is no more happier or better off than previous generations. So where does Paul actually find joy if not in hedonism? Well, in verse 4 we see that he finds joy in partnership. You see, to be truly human is to be made for relationships with other people. As we've seen in public meetings over the last few weeks we've been looking at the book of Genesis, God made Adam and Eve to partner together in the task that he had given them in ruling over and subduing the creation in the garden. But in our world of individualism, partnership is a really foreign and a really strange concept, isn't it? We all hate group assignments because we actually have to partner with other people. (laughs) And we don't know if they're going to lift us up or drag us down. We have to actually cooperate with other people who aren't just like us. And yet here Paul says that the partnership of the Philippians, it brings him joy even as he's in prison. So what does this partnership look like? Well, Paul is writing to them from another prison. Okay? He, he did a bit of a tour of prisons in the ancient world. And this time he's in prison in Rome. And from what we can tell from the rest of this letter, they had partnered with Paul by caring for his needs. They sent some dude called Epaphroditus, who we'll hear about next week, to go and help him. But one of the other key ways in which they expressed their partnership was through financial support of Paul. Look at Philippians chapter 4 on the screen behind me. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. A genuine, joyful gospel partnership. It's not like being a member of a Facebook group. Okay? You know how sometimes people add you to a Facebook group and you just see what's happening and you don't actually have to participate in it at all. You just sit there and observe what people are commenting on, right? It doesn't actually cost you anything. But that's not what being a gospel partner looks like. In fact, it's more like being a partner in a law firm, right? In a law firm, you care about what's happening in the firm because you're invested in it with your life, with your career, with your success. You believe in the future of what you're doing, even if it's the quitting criminals who've got away with doing the wrong thing. And you want as a team to succeed. And so I want to ask you, if you're in the EU today and you're a Christian, who are you actually in gospel partnership with? Who are you supporting financially or in other ways to see the good news of Jesus going out? I think it's easy for us as uni students to kind of think, well, yeah, that's great, I'll give it the thumbs up. And that's something that graduates do once they graduate one day down the track. And when I graduate, or if I graduate... Uh, Maybe I'll think about it then. But getting into a a habit of partnership won't magically happen when you just start working. It's something you need to begin cultivating now. It's something you need to think about being faithful and generous with the relatively small amounts that God has given you now. And that will help you and train you for a lifetime of being faithful and generous 
with whatever God might give you in the future. And so my challenge to you is if you're a Christian here today, uh, to sit down sometime in the next week and think about intentionally who you're going to partner with while you're here at uni. And then actually do something about it. Maybe sign up and get someone's prayer newsletters, whether they're a missionary or someone you're supporting. Ask how you can be supporting them in practical ways. Offer to actually join with them in financial partnership and put your money where your convictions are and invest in Christian partnerships that aim to see the gospel of Jesus going out, especially to those places that are less reached and less resourced. So if you're unsure where to begin, maybe go and talk to some other Christians in your faculty or your faculty leaders or maybe come and speak to Nathan. I'm sure as an EU Vice President he's got lots of ideas of how you could possibly do that. But don't procrastinate. Okay? Don't ignore the joy that comes from partnering with seeing Jesus proclaimed. But not only does Paul thank God in his prayers for the gospel partnership of the Philippians, he also makes a request. Paul says in verse 9, And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. You notice that Paul here prays for love. Now, that sounds kind of really nice, doesn't it? You know, everyone loves love. Okay? Who is against, no one can be against love. Okay, it's warm, it's fuzzy, it's that kind of hippie stuff, you know, be loving, all that. But Paul doesn't just pray that we will just love. You know, just get on there and love one another, right? Because he knows that all of us are confused and we don't actually fully know yet what real mature love looks like. You know, as we walk along the street and we have our iPods, uh, phones on and we're listening to pop songs, we think that love is all about our feelings. As we watch DVDs, we think that love is getting the guy or the girl at the end of the movie. We think that love is whatever makes us feel good. But Paul here says that he wants our love to be mature, to abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. You see, if you said that you wanted to love me, okay, you said, Jimbo, I want, I want to love you, you could try and do something loving for me by deciding to make a meal for me. And you could bake me a nice big tuna casserole, okay? And I would have to say that that would be one of the most unloving things you could do for me. Okay? Because I detest, I hate tuna. I hate all seafood, in fact. It, just, it makes me want to gag and throw up. But if you don't know much about me, if you don't have a lot of knowledge or information about the things I do like and the things that I don't like, then you can try and love me all you want, but you'll fail. You see, knowledge and discernment are important because they help you understand how to love. It helps you in verse 10, as it says, to discern and work out what is best so that you'll be pure and blameless on the day that Jesus returns and filled with the fruit of righteousness. And so do you see how love is linked to knowledge and also our outcomes or our actions, the fruit of righteousness? What Paul wants is for our hearts our heads and our hands to be transformed and to be governed by love. Mature love. Informed love. Fruitful love. Love that in verse 11 leads to the glory and the praise of God as we know what pleases God and we live that out in our daily lives. But because true joy looks so different from what we expect, Paul wants to actually reset He wants to turn our expectations upside down 
help us see that what looks like failure in the world may actually be success. You see, he tells us in verse 12 that what has happened to him has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul's imprisonment, it's not a sign of failure for him. It's not a sign of the Christian message being stopped or somehow blocked or locked up. In fact, locking up Paul has actually led to more people hearing about the great and life-changing news of Jesus. Because on the one hand, everyone in the palace guard has now become aware that this meddler called Paul is in prison. And they know that he's not just there because he's a thief or a murderer or someone else, but because he believes that some guy named Jesus died and rose back to life. And so Paul says in another letter to Timothy, this is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. The good news about Jesus, it's a radical idea. It's an idea that changes our world and it, it turns things upside down. And it's an idea that you cannot stop, you cannot lock up, you cannot snuff out. And despite how much people would like to silence us or put restrictions on our ability to talk about Jesus, it will not be stopped. But furthermore, Paul being locked up in prison has served to advance the gospel because when most of the other brothers and sisters in the church heard that he'd been locked up, rather than becoming scared or quiet, they become more confident in God and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Do you notice how radically different this is to the way that normal people respond? You see, normally if someone gets thrown in prison for something, right, you want to avoid what they did. Okay, we use prison as a deterrence to deter people away from doing things. The path to joy is not found in copying criminals' behaviour, especially if it leads you to wind up in a cell next to them. But that's what's actually going on here. Rather than Paul's imprisonment leading them to fear and to quietness, it leads to confidence and to speaking up. And so when you see Christians encountering opposition, either on campus or in the newspapers or in our wider society, or even overseas in countries where they're much more hostile than Australia is to the Gospel. What's your reaction? How do you actually feel on the inside when you see the message of Jesus being attacked and ridiculed and silenced? Does it make you want to withdraw in fear sometimes? That's just natural. That's normal. We are built with self-preservation mechanisms, right? They're hardwired into our body. Uh, The sympathetic nervous system in your body is designed to create a fight or a flight response. It's a basic subconscious human response and it's designed to keep you safe. But there are times in life when a mature response to a situation is not to fight and not to run. There are indeed times when we endure pain for the sake of a greater good based on our principles. You know, we grit our teeth and we go to the dentist because we know that if we don't go and get that filling put in, then there's going to be greater pain when they have to yank that tooth out. We endure the pain of university, right? It's very hard because we think that our future job prospects are more important than being in tape at the moment. And so at those times, we need to let our principles override our basic fears, our basic emotional instincts about pain. We need to let those deep-seated inclinations and beliefs 
about what is good to guide us and even steady us in the face of pain so we can achieve something that we believe is better. And that's what's happening here, isn't it? No one likes being put in prison. Persecution, it's not pleasant. No one likes being opposed or in conflict with other people. And so our natural and emotional reaction to pain is to withdraw from whatever's causing you that pain. And so speaking about Jesus ends up with being put in prison, well then, what I need to do is stop talking to people about Jesus. If telling people that he is Lord is labelled as hate speech and makes people upset or angry, then what I need to do is stop telling them that he is Lord. If the Bible's explanation of what it means to be human is offensive in my tutorials, then what I need to do is just keep my view to myself and, and just be quiet and not say anything to avoid upsetting people. But here Paul says, look, I got put in jail and rather than that stopping the gospel, it actually led to an explosion of Jesus-centred conversations, not just in the palace but all around. It emboldened other Christians to talk about Jesus even more. True joy and true success is not about finding personal fulfilment or personal comfort or having everybody like you. True joy and success is in seeing the great and the good and the life-changing news of Jesus going out and changing people's lives for the better. And so in verse 15, Paul continues to explain how important this is. He says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, hoping that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. From what we can gather from this passage, there are some people who thought, oh great, Paul's in prison, so what I can do now is I can go and score more runs on the board while he's in jail, right? It's like while he's in the jail section of Monopoly and you go and like, stock up all your part of the Monopoly board. He can, they, I can go and convert more people now and I can show everyone how great I am because Paul can't do that because he's in prison. And we kind of laugh at that because we think it sounds ridiculous, but could we in the EU ever fall into that trap of thinking that ourselves? To think that the EU are the only people on campus doing any gospel work? I think that somehow other Christian groups on campus aren't really as good because they aren't as big as us. Or to think that the main goal of the EU is to become a bigger club or society on campus. Look at how different Paul's perspective is. He doesn't care if people hear about Jesus through sincere people or even through the haters. He doesn't care if people trash his brand and they don't hear the gospel from him because it's not about Paul. It's about Jesus. And who cares if they hear about Jesus from Paul or from other genuine Christians or from even the people who are selfish Christians who try and preach Jesus as stick one up Paul. It doesn't matter because it's not about Paul and it's not about Paul's feelings and it's not about Paul's reputation because it's about the reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in that, Paul rejoices. Uh, A while ago, there was a scientist uh, named Nick and Nick made an alarming discovery You see, for thousands of years, scientists had been convinced that the Earth was the centre of the universe and that the sun revolved around the Earth and that the Earth was the centre. And Nick proposed the crazy, the the audacious idea that perhaps actually the Earth was not the centre of the universe and in fact maybe 
the sun was the centre of the universe and the earth revolved around the sun. Now, this theory by Nicholas Copernicus was absolutely mind-blowing for people in the way that they viewed the world in the 16th century. Okay? Now, we kind of laugh about it and go, duh, how could you ever believe that? But it's hard for us to actually fathom how upside down that was for people to understand. It was actually changed their entire world view, literally their view of the world, upside down. <laughs> and their understanding of their place in the universe. I want to suggest to you that as we read Philippians 1, we see a similar Copernican revolution that is required in our thinking. You see, we think that our life, that we are the centre of the universe, we are the centre of our existence, and that if God exists, well, he exists to orbit around us, to fulfil our dreams, to answer our prayers, maybe make us feel good once in a while, and he's watching over us, but basically life is all about me. And if that is the case, well, then why would you bother going to prison for Jesus? Why would you preach the gospel that's going to bring pain? Why wouldn't you be upset that other people try and trash your brand and cause you harm while you're in jail? Well, the reason why Paul doesn't let it upset him is because he doesn't care, because he knows the truth, that it's never been about him, that it's always been about Jesus. Jesus is the centre of your universe and you exist to orbit around him. You exist to bring him glory and honour and praise and your lives are not about promoting yourself or your brand or your dreams or gaining more followers on Instagram. It's about promoting Jesus and seeing his reputation grow and to see him gain more followers in this life. And do you see how that radical thinking, that Copernican type revolutionary thinking, it actually turns everything that you know about this world upside down. It's played out in the next few verses. In verse 20, as Paul says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Can you imagine imagine having the outlook on life, the worldview that says that if you are to live, then that is for Jesus. And that if you are to die, then that is actually a gain and not a loss. I don't know anyone in this world who thinks that death is a gain, right? Being separated from your family being separated from your friends, being separated from your loved ones, how is that any kind of gain? But in Paul's view, it is a real, genuine gain because in death we are not separated from the one who is truly our loved one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in verse 23, he says he desires to depart. He is okay with death because he knows it will bring him closer to Jesus. You see, for Paul, living in this world means that he is with the Philippians and he loves them, but he genuinely loves Jesus more. And so he's torn. He wants to be with the Philippians for their sake, but he wants to be with Jesus even more than he wants to be here on this earth. And so he knows in verse 24 that the reason it is necessary for him to stay in this body now, to keep on living, is not for his own self-advancement and not for him to realise potential or to indulge himself, or to achieve his dreams or find his inner joy, the reason Paul stays and lives on earth is for others. In verse 25 he goes on to say, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. 
Paul lives so that others can progress and so that they can mature in their faith and so they also can have that true joy that he has which can only be found in Jesus. So do you believe this? Do you live with this mindset that to live is Christ and that to die actually would be a gain? Or are you afraid of death? Are you afraid that one day you won't be here anymore so you've got to maximise life, you've got to milk the marrow out of it and you've got to do everything you can, spending all your efforts and all your time trying to enjoy temporary happiness because you know that one day it will be no more. Or do you believe, as Paul did, that Jesus died, he rose from the dead, and that because he is alive today, then that changes everything. It means that your short, brief lives now are nothing. They're a drop in the ocean compared to the infinite, untold joys that are going to be ahead in the future. The joy of being with Jesus and seeing all the great things that he has in store for us. And so this perspective, it actually tips this life upside down, doesn't it? It's revolutionary. And if you continue to live beyond tomorrow, that if God gives you, who knows, maybe 20 years, 40 years, look, let's just be adventurous. Say you have 80 more years left on this planet and you live to be 100. Will you spend those days chasing your dreams? Or will you spend those days labouring, as Paul describes in verse 22, in fruitful labour for the gospel? Paul knew, he had a glimpse into how good and how amazing and how precious this good news of Jesus was and how it changed everything in life. And so in verse 27 he calls on the Philippians and he calls on us to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And do you see again how if we just live for just happiness, whatever makes us feel good, then that's incompatible with our principles in this worldview. Because in verse 27 Paul goes on to say, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul anticipates... No, actually, he tells us that God himself has graciously granted us the privilege of not only believing in Jesus, but also suffering for his sake. Now, I don't know about you, but that is one gift that I really don't want. Okay, that's one gift that I'm happy to send, return to sender or I'll re-gift to someone else. I really don't want to be suffering. Okay? Who thinks that it's actually a gift to suffer? But here in verse 27, Paul tells us that he wants us to stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened or terrified in any way by those who oppose you. Because remember, hostility, it makes us upset, doesn't it? We don't like it. And so in the university, you know, we set up safe spaces to shield ourselves from hostility. And there's many good things that those safe spaces provide, but sometimes we can also set up safe spaces in our lives, metaphorically speaking, to protect ourselves from any unpleasantness. Okay? But rather than running away from opposition, when we proclaim Jesus as Lord, we need to make sure we don't give in to fear. Not giving into our emotions, but to let our deep-seated convictions and beliefs, our joyful convictions about Jesus, guide our response. So what are the implications of this priority of the Gospel going out? What does it look like to live with true joy? Well, we've seen how it means genuine partnership with those who are proclaiming the Gospel of Jesus. And so I want to remind you again, have you taken seriously your commitment to partner with those who are taking the good news of Jesus to those who haven't yet heard it? 
even now as a uni student? Are you being intentional about praying for and sacrificially partnering to see the gospel reach places that are less reached? In 1947, uh, there was a second year uni student, uh, a guy called Jim, and he took seriously the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 1. Uh, he and his mate Ron, they went on an end of year mission trip to a less reached and less resourced part of Mexico. Just like many of you guys at the end of the year might go on EU less rich, less resourced mission trips yourselves. And he became convinced and he, he saw the need and he saw how many opportunities there were for people to hear about Jesus and he saw that what mattered in life was the advancement of the gospel, especially to those who didn't yet have access to it. And so a few years later in 1952, he left America and the middle class uh, area that he lived in to go and tell the indigenous tribal people in Ecuador about Jesus. Four years later, in 1956, he was killed by ten native warriors for proclaiming Jesus to them. After his death, it would have been really easy for his wife Elizabeth to just go back to America and say, look, that's it, I've had enough. They killed my husband, I'm going to go back, and I deserve now to just have a nice, comfortable life in America. You don't understand, I've lost my husband, right? But she didn't give in to the emotions of fear. She took Paul's words seriously in Philippians chapter 1 and she continued her husband's work without fear. She bravely continued to proclaim Jesus amongst the native people of Ecuador. For both Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, the proclamation of Jesus was more important than their career plans in middle-class America. To tell people in places that are less reached and less resourced was more important, literally, even than life itself for them. After his death, uh, people were sorting through Jim's personal effects and they came across his diary. And then they found these words which so perfectly sum up his attitude in life and the message of Philippians chapter 1. He wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. What is your life's joy? Will some of you consider making this your life's goal? Will some of you consider how to spend the rest of your life joyfully partnering with others to see the gospel go out? Will some of you consider joyfully going yourselves to see those who are in places that are less reached and less resourced hear this good life-changing news? What is your life's joy?